0: What sort of rights do you have over your own body? Seems like a crazy question, until you think about pregnancy and abortion, birth control, sickness, disability, aged care. What about your rights if you've been physically or emotionally abused? When it comes to your body and the law, sometimes you have less control than you might think, especially if you're a woman. My name's Catherine Henry, and I'm from Catherine Henry Lawyers in New South Wales. Join me while we look at the laws around women's health, what they are and why we need them in this episode of Law Matters with Catherine Henry Lawyers. I'm interested in where the law steps up to protect women and where it's failing them. My guest, Danielle Crozier, saw this inequality back in the 70s when she was working as a mental health care nurse. She moved into women's health some 30 years ago and she's been the CEO of Women's Health New South Wales, a service that runs clinics around the state for some years, some decades in fact. She strives to ensure that all women have access to gender appropriate and affordable health care. In her role as CEO of Women's Health New South Wales, Daniil is someone that I've known and worked with on campaigns for many years, particularly regarding abortion issues, and I've been really honoured to make a stand for women's rights alongside her. So, Daniil, welcome to the podcast. A pleasure to be here, Catherine. Daniil, can you explain how things work at the Women's Health Centres? As I understand it, you don't just offer GP services, you also have a court advocacy service. How does that work in with the more traditional health services?
1: It was originally called the Court Assistance Programs uh, and was started, I think, at Redfern Legal Centre. When they introduced the... AVOs for domestic violence, women were going to court on their own and sitting in the same corridors as the perpetrators of violence, which was pretty scary to do. So there was less and less women showing up to court. And of course, there were some deaths that occurred because the bathrooms for the court used to be round the back. We've now got in each court, there are safe rooms, the bathrooms are inside, there's legal representations, there's support representation. So it's about keeping women alive long enough to uh, actually put in the legal procedures they need to keep them safe.
0: I know that court's assistance scheme and uh, in my days working as a lawyer in Sydney, I worked at uh, at that Redfern <laughs> yeah. um, court assistance scheme at the firm that I was with at the time. So um, sexual violence, sexual assault, all forms of domestic violence... Uh, We've been hearing a lot about this topic. Grace Tame released her book. Obviously, she's got a terrible story to tell. I heard her say that she is wanting the debate to move away from the behaviour of the person who's been assaulted, or abused, and more on the behaviour of the perpetrator. Do you feel that we're making any progress in the direction that Grace Tame wants to take the debate?
1: Look, I think uh, going back to, I mean, Rosie Batty becoming Australian of the Year, and then Grace Tame, and then the work that's happening in New South Wales in the schools. I mean, if you go back five or ten years, the media would not publish many uh, articles about uh, violence, unless it was in a more sensational way and it was often victim-blaming, as we call it. I think we have really changed the debate and the concepts of the debate. But what that has really done is escalated our understanding of the prevalence of gender bias and violence in misogynistic cultures I think we're just taking the head off it now. We've got more and more men coming forward asking for help. The men's uh, programs uh, are full. It's confronting, but I think more and more people are wanting to help and care and change the world. Like when you look at sexual assault and the law, so we thought, what was it, 14 years ago, we changed the definitions of uh, rape to sexual assault and then we looked at that you were meant to ask The perpetrator, what did he do to seek consent? What we didn't anticipate was the whole jury and the perpetrator and the court, because we're still living in a gendered bias uh, conversation, was they would shift to what she did. So he would say, well, she had a red dress on, she came with me, she was happy to be, she had a drink with me, she clearly wanted my company and we couldn't get rid of the bias in that law for that extra question that says, well, what did you do to gain consent? So we again changed the law of consent and this time we're adding some extra questions um, uh, and we have, uh, and so this is another trial to try and shift that emphasis back onto what has the perpetrator done rather than, I mean, culturally it's appropriate for women to try to look as pretty as they possibly can. So just saying that she, you know, dressed up and looked pretty is hardly an invitation to please rape me, but we don't have enough of those conversations about unpacking that bias. I agree with Grace.
0: Certainly, uh, people like Grace Tame and people like Rosie Batty uh, are changing the debate and shining a light on those aspects of our culture that, bit by bit, slowly by slowly, need to change. We've got a long way to go, but at um, least awareness and, is.
1: I mean, it, it's helpful. It's helpful that the lawyers are trying to help rewrite the law to make it work as well. Um, so we do have more people on on in the team trying to trying to get it
0: right. Let's move on, Daniil, to reproductive rights. And this is an area of uh, health and an area of law where women are disadvantaged. Uh, I've recently released an uh, e-book, a resource manual on women and the law. It's designed to be a legal guide to women's health issues, and it's available on my website. And what motivated me to prepare and compile that book was realising through all the work that I've done over the years and the work that we do at the firm, how women have been denied equal access to healthcare and nothing really demonstrates this more than access to reproductive rights. We've seen a lot of debate around abortion recently. Uh, it's always been a, bit, uh, a huge issue politically in the US with the politicisation of abortion. We've had the overturning of Rowan and Wade. Um, there's a lot of argument about what implications that has for things in Australia. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, I think uh, uh, it, it's made everyone a little bit frightened because they realise that law can be overturned and changed and to see it happening in what's considered an Anglo-Saxon uh, democratic country uh, makes makes everyone... St- I mean, our legal system is, is quite different, but it only takes a politician desire to introduce new law, who may have the support of um, the House.
0: The system and the legal situation around access to abortion and reproductive rights is very fragile. Uh, It took us a long time to get abortion out of the Crimes Act. Uh, New South Wales was the last state to decriminalise. There's talk of introducing uniform laws, Do you have any views about where the political focus should be? Uh, Should it be on upsetting the apple cart and looking at the abortion legislation around the country and whether we should have the identical laws in each state? Or do you see, and this is my view, that really the issue is around access and we should leave well enough alone? I'd be interested in your (laughs) thoughts.
1: Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't be too keen on dashing back to parliament to have another debate. Uh, What we've won was an exceptionally lot of hard work. I mean sitting through the debates uh, I mean they talk about women as though we're vessels and they think that's okay and it's on transcript. It was a terrible debate to sit through so having won that debate I wouldn't be poking that issue for a while. The real issue is to consolidate what we've got really and access Across New South uh, well, right across the country, is a huge, huge issue. I think Australia's too raw on the topic of, of abortion um, and abortion law. So uh, I, I. It was only any...
0: two years ago that we had. Had. Uh, that. Um, what? People 2019. Don't
1: know. Yeah, 2019. It's the first time since Federation in Australia that uh, women who live in New South Wales. Can make their own decision uh, whether it, as to whether it's appropriate for them to have an abortion. Prior to decriminalising it, you actually had to have a doctor give you permission. And even though the Levine ruling was an exceptional, it broadened out, because um, prior to that, people were happening to say they were crazy or or unfit or the, like the terrible. And if a doctor didn't keep their their uh, notes correctly, then the doctor could be charged by not keeping appropriate records that match the legislation. So the medical profession was nervous, um, doctors were nervous, women didn't have access, they didn't have permission, the freedom to just say, no, this isn't working for me. So women can make their own decision now, but because the entire system in New South Wales is in the private sector, so abortion that isn't due to a car accident is all carried out in the private sector, starts at five and $600. Uh, there's only 13 clinics roughly across New South Wales, um, and they're all on the eastern border, bar a couple, which means if you're in rural New South Wales, uh, you've got a problem. I, I
0: was very pleased to hear there has been a decision politically at a federal level to look at the question of access to reproductive services, uh, medical abortions, uh, surgical abortions, which constitute the major number of abortions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's a really good thing. Uh, in New South Wales, regional New South Wales, we see it. I'm aware of it. We had a the major provider of abortion services in the Hunter region provided by Murray Stopes, Cease Trading, Uh, in Newcastle, so most women have to travel to Sydney. It's something that needs to be freely available and we need to do all that we can to focus the debate and the energy, political energy, on on improving access. So um, there are so many other areas of women's health where I feel that we're still yet to get it right. One of the issues that we as health lawyers, we've worked quite a, a good deal for women who have had terrible outcomes from uh, vaginal mesh products. Mm. Uh, About uh, 10 days ago, I think it was, we learnt of the outcome of the Johnson & Johnson class action involving many thousands of women who had very poor outcomes uh, arising from the use of prolapse mesh. I understand that your service has provided some support for those women. Could you tell us how you did that? Because I know from the women that we've acted for, and we weren't involved in the class action, but the women who've taken individual legal action, that they've been very traumatised by the surgical outcome, the aftermath of the surgery. It's led to further problems and treatment. So how has the Women's Health New South Wales helped those women?
1: Okay, the mesh injured uh, women uh, was a huge, a huge medical error. Um, mesh was designed for oh, hernias, hernias probably around the gut, um, in the maybe in the esophagus. But the mesh wasn't designed to go inside the vagina, and what it did was actually embed itself in the organs of the women. So, like, some women can't walk. I mean, so they're they're afraid of the medical profession. We actually contacted the, the chairperson uh, of Mesh Australia to see if there was any way we could help. Nobody had offered them counselling or access to uh, rooms that they could meet because, uh, like, once you set up a network, I mean, you're meeting in each other's homes. You don't know these women. It's much easier to meet in a... But supportive environment. Supportive environment, yeah. So... I mean, I watch them from a distance. I mean, all we could do is uh, put out an offer and, uh, and empowerment is allowing people to make their own decisions. Uh, we supported them by putting their stuff on our website, by um, uh, offering them how to information about how to structure as an association, you know, that sort of really practical sort of stuff.
0: I know that uh, the women that we've acted for, by virtue of what's happened, really feel uncomfortable seeking medical advice in the future. They don't want to go back into a medical environment for anything, basically. It's something that we always structure within the claims that we run for women who've had bad surgical outcomes. So providing the support that you have uh, for dealing with the legal system, I think is um, very commendable. At the end of this litigation, this massive class action, do you have any thoughts around the outcomes for the women? How women who've had an outcome that involves significant personal injury where they've got to actually pay for the costs of medical treatment and further surgery, Um, coming out the other end of a class action where they've had to incur um, the costs of litigation funders, which are peculiar to class actions and and don't come up if you're just taking on an individual-based action. Do you have any thoughts around class action versus non-class action?
1: Uh, Look, yes and no. Um, uh, In the end, uh, you've got to use the vehicle that you've got access to. So, um, and both have their merits. I mean, there were two problems with the mesh injury Australia, and that was that the women were injured. But there was also the issue of ignoring them for 20 years when they were trying to say, look, I'm having a problem here and, you know, being told, oh, it's okay, it's only minor. I mean, women, women want want uh, a remedy, a health remedy as well. And whatever as a, remedy they way.
0: pursue, the important thing is, uh, the key take-home is that we want re- they want relevant skill uh, and we- they want the right support. And I guess that should be where, well, and they want the, what, right where the attention is.
1: They want the right input. And uh, they want
0: to be part of the process.
1: Yeah, that's for sure.
0: I wonder if uh, we could just turn our focus into the second half of women's lives. And I'd like to hear from you about what some of the most common concerns for women over 50 are. Uh, Women who are looking at menopause, ageing, heart health, um, gynaecological issues like hysterectomy. How have things changed?
1: Yeah, I think menopause has uh, a lot more training of doctors to understand the whole process of menopause and help women with menopause, that's medically. But surgically, so the women over 80, uh, quite a few of those women had profound prolapses. And that group of women, some of them had just, just silently lived with that all their life and got on with it. So um, you also had the whole issue of doing a total hysterectomy which was just removing all the ovaries as well as the um, the uterus, which of course meant women started going into menopause. The minute you take the ovaries out, I mean, I still think women are getting higher levels of hysterectomies, but some actually really need it. They've got a major problem, major bleeding, major, um, and it works for them, but they leave the ovaries in. So that's a change. I still don't think birthing care and Uh, reproductive care has enough focus. There's a whole pile of things. Why do we have contraception and reproductive care attached to hospitals rather than um, more? Well, we've got women's health centres in New South Wales, more of those, but you could have a reproductive health care services more available everywhere that are, because, you know, if you've got to go to the Doctor, or the doctors are like full. They are like they're looking after sick people. They don't. Women have to go and sit in waiting rooms with with sick people just because they need a script. They've now shown research that say if a man and a woman showed up to a casualty department with exactly the same symptoms, a man would be presumed as having a heart attack. And get into that room in the twelve minutes that's required, and the woman would be left sitting in the waiting room for two hours on a tranch three. Uh, so more women die of heart attack after the, the year after they've had a heart attack than men, because they're not seen in that twelve minutes. So there's damage to the heart, and then they're not getting the they're, they're not getting the same medication as men. It is the weirdest bias. Uh, I've
0: only recently become aware of it that uh, how. Gender-based cardiac care is, yeah. and that another example, I suppose, of the um, you know the, the way in which women don't receive the quality of care that they should, and how women are uh, the victims of discrimination in the healthcare
1: setting. So footballers, there's the big issue of brain injury with footballers. Uh, so they're all you know being sent off to get better care. Uh we've had with domestic violence, women who have ongoing sustained um injuries or I would say brutality, uh, uh consistently beaten. No one was thinking of sending them off to see if they've got any brain injury happening. So again, we're we're withholding information and services mm. that uh Yeah,
0: I, can... I'm I'm very much on a roll in that area about withholding services um, and um and, and how I see that playing out in birth policy,, yeah. uh, because we see women who have not had the information that they deserve and that they need, and you know i 'm not advocating for vaginal birth or for you know cesarean section. What I do think we need to advocate for as women working in this area, whether it 's health or law, uh, is that women need to be empowered by having the information about choice. I'm I've been quite staggered over the last five years Mm. about what I've learnt about uh, birthing practices and what and the information and you know (laughs) drawing on my own experience I certainly when I was going through this period of my life as a a, a woman a pregnant woman um a very put under a a huge amount of pressure to uh, deliver vaginally I was an older mother um, having my first child at almost 40, I might add. But, um, you know, what I didn't know then was how uh, the female body is less likely to be able to deliver babies healthily and um, without trauma and physical damage. Empowering women with the information that they need to make the choices that are going to be the best for them and the healthiest for them is should be the guiding principle of maternal birth policy. The firm does a lot of work uh, for women who who have had traumatic birth. Uh, traumatic birth generally as a result of vaginal birth. So, you know... So we, we as
1: citizens presume that the system is providing the best practice it can. Uh, you don't know what information and choices you could have had if it was better. So this fr- freedom to make uh, decisions about your life really relies on... In the availability of information that is supported by this the system and by law so they all work together to create best practice i'd like
0: to just turn to a campaign that we both worked on Danielle, and i just wondered what your uh, recollections were
1: of an of of the zoe's law campaign a woman was pregnant um, she was going to name um, her child Zoe. Um, her car got hit by a drunk and her fetus died. It was a tragedy and it happened up, I believe, in the Gosford area and the local member um, took up the case and it was very unusual the way the parliament uh, and d- developed some legislation to try to have the fetus recognised as having independent legal status so that the drunk driver could be charged with uh, an injury both to Zoe's mother as well as the fetus itself. The community think, oh yeah, that seems reasonable, how terrible. Those drunks and drug addicts should pay pay a higher price because of the injury that they've done. But the Crimes Act was reviewed 15 years ago and the the injury to a fetus was already recognised. So when a judge charges you with uh, a legal... uh, Grievous bodily uh, harm. um, Grievous bodily harm, the judge would look at the list of all the things that they can add extra penalties uh, for and the death or injury to a fetus uh, uh, of the woman was already listed there. So all of us... Uh, could only come to believe that the this was a vehicle that was being used to try and prevent, uh, to to gain or prevent abortion or or the right of women to have control over their bodies because that's how it had been um, interpreted in the States and that's how it had been used in the United States of America. So,
0: yes, um, and women and people who have worked hard over the years to restrict access to abortion have followed very carefully what has happened in America, yeah, which lovely, is why what's happening at the moment um, has, is, is, nerve-wracking. Uh, has, yeah, yeah. is nerve-wracking and anxi-
1: anxiety-provoking. In, in the end, it was a woman who had had the same experience who stepped up and said, no, this isn't the answer. It won't change my grief and it won't change the injuries. This is being um, a misuse of law and it's a bad law um, yes, so uh, that
0: woman, her point was, we don't need to have an amendment to the Crimes Act. This will be used by those who argue against ac- uh, liberal access to abortion to get in through the back door. The terrible. language that was used was unfortunate because the the model of Zoe's Law that was put before Parliament
1: introduced this, cons- used the, the phrase, unborn child. I mean, there are legal terms that define each stage of a growing fetus. And when you first give birth, uh, you know, the first three months of your life, you're a baby. You don't become a child until about 12 weeks. So the, the language in the legislation was even cutting across the current definitions, both in medicine. So the whole medical profession was going, what the, you can't change the definition of parts of the body uh, without causing huge consequences um, in all medical practice. So they did have the whole medical uh, fraternity up in arms as well. Well, it
0: did. And there was a huge coalition of organisations, as you say, medical groups, legal groups, uh, family planning, women's mm. health, New South Wales. Uh, you know, it, it was a great example of uh, collective action, yeah, uh, working together yeah. to to achieve the best possible outcome, uh, and we were successful. Was reintroduced last year uh, with much more acceptable language, and um, and slipped through quietly. But I guess the Lesson from all of that was it was appropriate and we'd learnt and the politicians realised that uh, you have to be transparent about legislative reform. What do you think, if you were to think of one thing that you'd like people to take away from our conversation, what would that be?
1: Well, I think in this context, Catherine, I think it's uh, the work you're doing. I mean, even at the Royal Hospital in Victoria, they have lawyers on site. Really understand that the system includes law. Nothing that we do, whether it's the structure of housing, money, work, education, everything we do, is it has an effect in law or law affects that. Like, for me, everything's about appropriate engagement and uh, compassion and in, engagement in medicine. But without the law, understanding how the law impacts on that, then you, you can't get systemic change. So good on you, mate.
0: Oh, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: My guest, Danielle Crozier, CEO of Women's Health New South Wales. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast, Law Matters, with Catherine Henry Lawyers. I'm Catherine Henry, and if you need to talk to somebody about the law and your health, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Awabakal people by Liz Clarkson of Nurtured Content and Sarah Shands of Point Five Productions. Sound engineering by the team at Salt Tooth Studios. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review. You can subscribe to Law Matters wherever you get your podcasts.